Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe Lodge and Noosa. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I am your host, Chris Mascaro. And if there is something going on in the game of golf, you want to talk about it with my guest this morning, the voice of golf, Mr. Peter Kessler. Peter has got such a great you know, understanding and knowledge of the history of the game, and anytime I need perspective, on what's happening either now or getting a lesson in what happened back then, my go-to guy is always Peter Kessler. I don't think there's anyone ever who has spoken directly with the greats of the game and knows more about them and what has taken place over the history of this wonderful game of golf than Peter, so we're going to tap into his knowledge when he joins us in just a few moments. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our new sponsor, the great folks over at Golf Bags. USA. Golf Bags USA is the ideal choice for corporates and individuals wanting to customize their logo on high-quality golf gear. Their founder, Travis McLean, has taken his love for golf to new levels. I'm telling you, folks, this stuff is absolutely fantastic. They understand that everyone wants to dress like a golf professional, play like a golf professional, and now with Custom Golf Bags USA, you can have a bag like a golf professional. They offer the best in quality and innovation by utilizing the most cutting-edge production technologies and expert workers to ensure that your bag is at the top of its class. Custom Golf Bags USA knows that top-quality custom golf bags are more than just fancy embroidery and needlework. It's the effective blend of high-standard materials, superior design, and top-notch customer service. Everything from the interior structure of the bag to the outer panels is created with the utmost care and attention to detail. Why not let your clients walk the fairways promoting your company brand and Custom Golf Bags USA can customize a golf bag that's going to make you a legacy with that customer. You're going to give them something that they're never going to forget. It's your game, your way. For more information, check out their Facebook page, Custom Golf Bags USA, and give them a like on Facebook. That's important to them, too. All right, I want to kick off the show like we do every single week by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank you for your daily sacrifices and all you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who serve or have served in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor 
for us to be a part of what you're doing. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. We also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio, as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store, or you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone and take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. All right, now back with me on the Kyvan Foods uh, guest line and the Custom Golf Bags USA guest line is the voice of golf, Mr. Peter Kessler. Like I m- mentioned a moment ago, Peter has interviewed almost every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early uh, to mid-90s, he was the voice of HBO Radio. He moved on to become the primary broadcasting talent when the Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995. He's also hosted his own show on Sirius XM's PGA Channel, you can hear him hosting the Peter Kessler Show if you go on iTunes and download his show. Fantastic stuff, folks. You've got to check that out. And when I tell you this, I absolutely mean it sincerely. Over the last few years, when people have asked me about who I listen to or watch to learn how to conduct an interview, I say Peter Kessler. He's a broadcasting genius, and no one on the planet does it better than Peter. And I am thrilled he is back next on the tee with me this morning. Good morning, Peter. How have you been, my friend? I'm doing fine. I, I had a friend of mine come out and watch me hit a couple of balls the other day and he said you know you're getting slightly ahead of it and so i decided to not get slightly ahead of it and i started hitting a draw ball again i haven't hit a draw in about three years so i must be doing well because the ball golf ball is going from right to straight and i've got a chance to break 85 and i'm a happy camper nah good for you my friend uh I'd like to be able to say the same. Maybe I need to get the same guy to take a look at my golf swing. But you know, I tell you what, Peter. You know, here here on the uh, from the, I think from the Midwest, you know, to the East Coast, I think we're all just dreaming of being able to get out on the on the golf course again. We've had so much cold weather and snow this season. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me. My friends up in the northeast part of the country are still standing underneath about uh, six to seven feet of snow drift, uh, you know, hoping that one day they can see the golf course again. But uh, good for you for being able to get out. Well, I mean, you know, we're lucky down here. After here, it's been cold recently. You know, it's been in the 50s, so people are just absolutely <laughs> freaked out. But, you know, and the other reason I bring that up is it. no matter what level of player you are, it's a really hard game. It's just a really hard game. I mean, you know, unless you're really, really a fine player, there isn't anything the Tiger's been up to that you can't identify with, which is one of the really cool things about the game. It's not so cool that it's hard, but it's cool that you can identify with really the best that a player can do and the worst that a player can do. You can hit a 30-yard bunker shot from the edge of the green within a couple of feet of the flag and have it be a beautiful shot that lands softly and rolls up. That's as good as it can be done by anybody. Tiger at his peak, anybody that's ever played the game. So you can hit shots that those guys hit, but then you hit the shots that you hit and you begin to appreciate that the most difficult thing in golf is to be consistent at whatever level you are, as opposed to mm-hmm. consistently great. I mean, when Tiger was playing his best, one of the, the hallmarks of that was how consistently he played his best from week after week after week. And you look at a player, say, like Phil Mickelson long-term, Phil only has two or three good weeks a year. Out of 52 weeks, 
two or three good weeks a year. The year that he won the British Open two years ago, he won two times. He won the Open Championship, and I can't remember where he I think he might have won at Phoenix, but somewhere out west earlier in the year, that was the two good weeks he had for the year. Last year he had one good week at the PGA Championship, which got him onto the Ryder Cup team. So, you know, when you're looking at the second best player of a generation that spans just about 20 years now, and and that player only has a couple of good weeks a year, it just shows you how hard golf is. I mean, you didn't hear Billy Horschel last year until he ripped off a few in a row. Nobody had even said his name one time. Or Webb Simpson, how he ever got picked for the Ryder Cup on his record last year. So it's the consistency that's so difficult. And no matter what level you are, you can appreciate that consistency is the toughest thing to be. Right. Absolutely right. And speaking of consistent. Peter, I want to start off the show, you know, and, and our time together today by paying tribute to Billy Casper. We lost Billy a couple of weeks ago. You two were really good friends. We, you and me, interviewed Billy each of the last two years leading into the weekend before the Masters. Do you mind sharing your memories of Billy and just how great a person he was and how great a player he was? You know, it's it's funny. When when you talk when people talk about really fine players, they talk about he was a shot maker. I never understand that he was a shot maker. What are the other guys? If he's a shot <laughs> what are the other people who can, are they not shot makers? So, you know, or it's a ball strikers golf course coming up this week. Well, what isn't a ball strikers golf course? So, you know, Billy is what you would call by that curious definition, one of the greatest ball strikers of all time. He had ridiculous re- Ridiculous hand-eye coordination. You know, we talk about so many things with Billy Casper, his philanthropy, his family, the fact that he won 51 times on tour hitting a fade, 10 times on the senior tour hitting a draw, but he could really strike his ball. He, He said that if you put a telephone pole 40 yards away from him and gave him a seven iron, it was unlikely that if he took 10 swings at the pole with a 7-iron from 40 yards that he would miss the pole any of the 10 shots. He said, very unlikely that I would miss one from 40 yards with a 7-iron. Very wow. unlikely. He said, I could pick out anything. And then it makes the Byron Nelson story seem true, which is in 1935 when he was pro up at Ridgewood in northern New Jersey, which is a great 27 holes by Tillinghast. And the Ryder Cup was held there in 35, and Byron Nelson was the assistant pro, and he saw the guys, and he saw the bags, and he saw the outfits, and he said, I want to play on the Ryder Cup team. And, of course, 10 minutes later, he was on a Ryder Cup team. But what he used to do was he would stand on the porch at Ridgewood Country Club and hang out with sort of caddies and members at the end of a night, and he would take bets on hitting a telephone pole with a three-iron that, he would pick up halfway through the flight of his ball at about 100 yards, being able to hit his three iron, just a little bit less than 200 yards, and he would hit it time and again with a draw, with a cut, with a straight ball. I mean, you've seen the commercials on television where Rory McIlroy's hitting into a, um, a washing machine that's suspended 100 feet above the ground, and the ones that he misses the washing machine with are right next to the washing machine. It's not in the area. I mean, it's totally there. It's not the height differential is not 10 feet off. So these guys are so incredibly accurate. And I asked Billy once, I said, well, how many greens did you guys hit? And he said, well, Jack, he said, used to hit 
like 16 greens. He's And according to Jack, Jack would hit 16 greens. Now, remember, the number one guy on tour hits 12. The number one guy on tour hits 12. So Jack Nicklaus is, is hitting 16 greens. And he said, well, you know, I can really work on my chipping because if I miss two greens, I know I can chip it at 10 feet or less, and the chances are zero that I'm going to miss any putts inside of 10 feet, so that takes care of that. <laughs> Casper had pretty much the same attitude in some ways. Casper hit tons and tons of greens, but he had a better short game than Jack did. You know, Jack was able to overpower courses and hit, you know, two and three clubs less than Billy on occasion. So Billy will have more chips over the course of a season than Jack Nicholas would just because Jack's closer to the green on his tee shot, and that's the most important thing when you're talking about scoring really is being long and in play. Casper hit a little peeler of 235 yards with a cut, but he always put the thing in place. So here was a guy who was missing basically no greens, and he used to talk about, if you could get him to talk about it, how good his hand-eye coordination was, that the relationship between his eyes and the club face and his hands was, was particularly unique. And so as a player, he was he was a really fine player, but again, the little cut shot off the tee, but, you know, from 64, from 62 through 70, I think Jack and Billy each won 33 times on tour. Arnold won around 30, and Gary Player would have been significantly less probably in the teens somewhere just because he didn't play over here that much. So, you know, from the time of Jack's first win at the U.S. Open in 62 through 1970, you know, his tied with the best golf he ever played because from 70 through 75, he also played incredible golf. But 68, 69, he didn't win any majors, so he had this little cutoff point and starts fresh in 70 for Jack, but 33 each. And Nicholas used to say, I would look at the leaderboard, and he said, quite frankly, the name I looked for first was not Arnold or Gary, but it was Billy because I knew no matter what, he might not go away. And Arnold and Gary, by the very nature of their game, which was very much risk-reward, could have an issue. He said, but Billy never did. He said, Billy never made a mistake. And, you know, 51 times in the era of Jack and Arnie and Gary and Lee Trippi, I mean, it's just like so incredible to think somebody could win that many times. You know, Arnold won a dozen more than that, and then Jack won another nine over Arnold's total. So you're looking at, you know, three of the greatest players of all time all playing at the same time, still get, you know, winning 51 times and more. So as a player, you know, he was just a beautiful, beautiful player. I mean, you think of... You know, 66 at the Olympic Club, for example. He's seven shots down to Arnold with nine holes to play in regulation. Arnold's thinking about breaking Ben Hogan's record. Casper's thinking about beating Jack for second place and says to Arnold walking down 10, you know, I'm going to really have to go to get second. And Arnold said, oh, no, you'll get it, Bill. He said, if there's anything I can do to help you, please let me know, not knowing that Arnold was about to give him turn over seven shots. But the thing about it was, it's not everybody remembers it for what Arnold didn't do, but the, just equally as fascinating and important is what Casper did do because Arnold shot 39 on the back nine. So if the guy he's playing with shoots 36, well, Arnold's still going to comfortably win by a few shots. But he didn't shoot 36, he shot 32. 30 freaking two. 
He was three <laughs> under par in the back nine. Birdie's 13, a really tough little par three. Birdie's 15, a really tough little par three. Birdie's 16, a brutal par five, hitting a one iron off of the tee where Arnold snap hooked it and was lucky to make a great six at the end of the thing. Casper makes birdie there. So one of the very few players who had the stuff to do the right stuff at exactly the most important time. So to beat Arnold by seven shots by shooting three under on a course that was, you know, where the score, the average scores were probably in the 73-74 range. Guys were shooting big numbers at Olympic that week. And so as a player, you know, he wasn't afraid of anybody. You know, if you weren't afraid of Arnold when Arnold was Arnold, then there isn't much that's going to, you know, put you off your game. So Casper as a player was... I don't feel he was underrated because he was really great. Nobody's ever said he wasn't really great. But I think underappreciated because from an aesthetics point of view, he was the least attractive of the big four. I mean, you know, Jack, you know, Jack at that point, Jack's 5'8 now, but Jack was 5'11 and a half. He had hip surgery, so it made him shorter. But when Jack was 5'11 and a half, he was a big dude and the longest hitter that was out there. And, you know, once he became the golden bear, then he became handsome. He wasn't, in our view, handsome before that. But, you know, you respected his power and what he could do to a golf course. Arnold had all of the charisma and he had all of the looks and he had the crazy golf swing, but he could win golf tournaments. And player was a nut bar with the whole physical fitness thing and all of the things that he did to make himself so fascinating as a human being, both on and off the golf course. So they all kind of had either shticks or something about them that was particularly charismatic or, in Jack's case, just being the best player and people knowing that. Castro didn't have any of that going on. You know, he was he was more drab, you know. He didn't wear, you know, exciting colors. Not that the other guys did, but he didn't do anything in that way to set himself off. He was a he was a Hogan kind of a guy, you know, gray slacks and a white shirt or a navy shirt. You know, not a lot of stuff. Occasionally he'd wear a yellow sweater or a red shirt, but he was pretty conservative, and his game was conservative. You know, the other three guys were power players. Billy just put the thing in play. I mean, it was a whole different deal. You know, it was like watching a guy from your club who could hit a two thirty five and just cut the golf ball into play every single time is not that fascinating to watch. Jack hitting at almost 300 yards, that's fascinating to watch. Arnold trying to carry things that you can't carry, that was fascinating to watch. So it was just really the persona, even though everybody recognized that he was probably a great man. And then you find out in his personal life that he was a really great man. I think he had 72 grandchildren. I mean, the whole thing's crazy. 11 kids, you know, a handful of them adopted. I, I don't know how many grand, you know, how many great grandchildren, but there were tons. Um, you know, the, just his work around the world, working with young people, his youth camps, his willingness to show up anywhere for free just to work with young people. All they ever talked about was young people, bringing them into the game, helping them move forward in life, giving them opportunities. You know, so just, and he was a great businessman too. He had a great, great business managing golf courses all over the world. I mean, hundreds of golf courses, a big organization. And, you know, when he would show up at Augusta every year, you know, it was an incredible wow. People just loved to be near him and he loved to talk. He just, Love to talk. He's 
he could go much longer than I can. He would go on and <laughs> on and on. And, you know, you didn't really have to do anything. I mean, he was one of my favorite interviews, and I know he had to be one one of yours because he also was a great interview. Like, you didn't really have to do anything. You just, you know, it's a little bit like our relationship on the air. When I talk to you off the air, you say as much as I do, but when we're on the air, you tee it up for me, and, you know, and you want me to go, and you want me to paint the pictures that I can paint in any way that I'm capable of painting them. And, you know, and with Billy, you know, it was the same thing, except it was more wonderful because his stories were better. But, you know, I remember I used to do TV with him, and I would say, let's let's talk about family for a minute, Bill. And he would just start sobbing, just tears. And I, I hadn't even asked him anything yet. All I said was, let's talk about family. Nancy Lopez was the same way. You would say, let's talk about your dad. And then this, the waterworks would open up. I used to always keep handkerchiefs in my pocket for those moments, which were some of the greatest moments. If you could get him to cry without trying to make him cry, that was, you know, that was a hole in one. So Billy was a fantastic interview. He would tell you great stories. I mean, he told us the great story, among others, about the second hole at Augusta National in 1970 in the playoff with Gene Littler and how he'd hit it left off the tee, and it was one foot from going into a red state hazard, and if the ball had been in there, that there was really no place to drop the ball and play the shot afterwards, and he could have taken a seven or an eight or anything. And as it was, he was able to play out and get his five. And, you know, so he's told us so many stories of where the ball was and what he hit and what he was thinking. And, you know, here's another thing. As a player, he won his first U.S. Open at Winged Foot West in 1959. I used to live 10 minutes from Winged Foot. That is one hard golf course. Those green complexes are so difficult but never unfair. It's an A.W. Tillinghast golf course. It's completely fair, but very, very difficult. But never where you go, seriously, seriously, I have to play this shot. You know, you didn't get any of those where you were like 15 feet down into a bunker and couldn't even see the green. You didn't. There wasn't much of that there. You know, you normally could play, but very difficult golf course. And, you know, when Bobby Jones, for example, won the 36-hole playoff there in 1929, with 36-hole playoff, he shot 72-69 and beat the other guy that he played off with, Al Espinosa, by 23 shots. That's how hard that golf course was then. you know. And so in 1959, when Billy Casper won, one point he had nine one putts in a row, I think, the last five holes of Saturday and the first four holes of Sunday. He had one putts on the hardest, hardest, hardest greens. And he said... He went up there 10 days early, stayed with a dentist friend in New Jersey, and said to the dentist friend after he played Wingfoot, he said, I think I can win there because the greens are very much like the greens that I grew up playing in San Diego. He said, they they appear identical to me, and I can definitely putt these. And then, of course, he went out and won. I mean, it's amazing to know that the green complexes are such that you feel like you have an advantage. You've got to be some putter. You know, and a lot of people think he was the best putter that ever rolled the ball. I was talking to Jim Thorpe recently. I was at an outing with him, and I, and I said to Thorpe, who are like the three best putters you ever saw? And he went, Billy Casper, Jack Nicklaus, Ben Crenshaw. I said, Casper first or just one of the three? He said, Casper first. He said, he was the best putter I ever saw. So that's wow. a couple of thoughts about Bill. Yeah, and you know, through the course of the story, Peter, when you mentioned the win totals that he and Jack being equal during that span of time, kind of at at the point when you know the big three were becoming 
the big three and Mark McCormick's influence in getting those three guys together. Do you know? Did McCormick ever approach Billy about being, you know, a part of the group? Could there could there have been a big four? Yeah, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was briefly a big four. I think that McCormick did reach out to Bill. I'm not certain of my ground here where I usually am, but I believe they either flirted with it or that there was a brief relationship, but then Billy left that relationship very shortly after it began. Maybe he felt like he, and this is, I'm guessing, but I'm half vaguely remembering that he wasn't going to be treated the same way that the other guys were perhaps, or that he might have a different philosophy about outings, about endorsement stuff, about what was important, about what wasn't important, the need to be home more. So he may not have fit into, by his own choice, the Mark McCormick mold. I I think that's how the thing unfolded at the time. Mm -hmm. Peter, I want to get back to the history lesson in a little bit, but um, now I kind of want to get into some of today's players and some of the things that we're seeing going on around the game right now. And you mentioned the Ryder Cup a little bit ago, Davis Love being named the U.S. Ryder Cup captain for the next go-around. Surprised that it was Davis? Yeah, I was really surprised. Uh, you know, they were up 10-4 Saturday afternoon at one point, and they, they didn't win. I mean, that that's a lot of points. And, you know, and some of that has to be strategic. There were a few sit-downs on Saturday afternoon that, you know, you, you could have looked at with a little bit of curiosity, but they still came out of Saturday with a 10-6 lead, and that's a pretty big lead to have going into the Sunday singles, which they – lost. I mean, he did some curious stuff. He had his two best players play in the last two groups. So if they were really needed, you know, they needed to they were going to need to be played earlier. You can't take the chance that it'll come down to the last match. Nobody can forecast that mathematics. You've got to get your strongest guys for sure in the mix while there's still a mix. So he didn't do that. And then he put the pins in really Really, really hard spots, basically, through most of the day. You know, even, for example, his guys were largely draw ball hitters. So on 17, he had a back right pin, wrong pin. On 18, he had a front right pin, wrong pin. I mean, he could have just put them in the middle of the green so that everybody had a chance for birdies, and there's a good chance that the birdies even out over the end of the day. But all of a sudden, when you start having tricky pins and pars become good scores, it's not so clear which team will make those pars. And you know, and then if a team gets on an emotional run, then they get it up and down from everywhere, and they hold putts like Justin Rose did against Mickelson. But you can't hold that against Davis Love. I mean, here's a good situation. Justin Rose makes a 10-footer on 16 against Phil to stay one down, just to stay one down. He makes a 50- or 60-footer on 17 to get back to even, and then makes a 12- to 14-footer on 18 to go ahead and win that match. And, you know, so that match doesn't work out that way. And there's no whips in golf, as Jack Nicklaus said. He said there's only what was. But, you know, that can't be pinned on Davis but he didn't make great decisions when he had to make great decisions. You know, and now I, I don't understand, like, why they bring back the other guys that they're bringing back. Like, he's made Tom Lehman an assistant captain, but Tom Lehman's team got absolutely waxed. 
Tom Lehman did not win a PGA. Tom Lehman won five times on the PGA Tour. You would think from the way that folks talk that he won 25 times on the P1, five times. So what is it about his record that's interesting? You know, when you look back, he, Davis Love had Mike Holbert. What, what did he ever do? You had Bill Kratzer. What, what did Billy? I mean, it was just like his friends. I mean, you might as well have your neighbors come. I mean, you know, it had nothing to do, to do with anything. I mean, why would you take there? They don't know. They've never even played golf as good as the worst player on the team on the best day they ever had playing golf. So how can they identify with it? They don't know. They were marginal players. So I thought the whole thing was disasterville. I like the fact that they're forcing guys to take assistant captains who will remain assistant captains or maybe become captains again because you're picking – Two guys who were captains and two guys who could be captains. So <clears throat> Layman's one of his was a captain, but the guy got shellacked. So I'm not sure. And these players, they don't know him. These players don't. Tom Layman's Tom Lehman's on the scene. They don't, they don't know who he is. They don't know his record. They couldn't tell you anything that he's ever done. So there's not going to be a, a, a trust there. And then the other dopey thing is, they're going to have four assistant captains, each in charge of three players. So a pod system. This is not the Navy SEALs. This has nothing to do with anything to do with anything that remotely makes sense. They're going to be in charge of three It's What is this, nursery school? These are not promising junior players. They're 12 of probably the 30 best players in the whole world. You're going to coddle them and try to create an environment for them like they don't know how to play their best golf without you doing stuff. I mean, are they going to make the toast for them in the morning? I just think the whole thing is so wildly overcooked. You know, and then the scary part is they're saying we're coming up with a blueprint for the next 20 years. So, I mean, we've got to have 10 more Ryder Cups before they get this right. I mean, so and I was so I was surprised I picked a guy who's never won before. And the other thing is, he may be a nice guy, and he is a nice guy, but he has zero charisma. I mean, it's going to be really uninteresting to listen to him over the next two years. It's going to be really uninteresting. He doesn't have an interesting personality. He doesn't have stories. He doesn't have a smile. You know, when he walks on the golf course, it looks like he's smelling bad cheese all over the place. Um, I, I, I'm very surprised at the choice. Very surprised at the choice. So, you know, you talked about the you know the pod system and coddling players, and I mean, we look back right to you know where, when did we last have success? Well, we last had success when Paul Azinger was there. He used the pod system. We heard Mickelson right, kind of touting, you know, why didn't we do that? That's when we were successful. Why don't we continue to do it that way? Which is clearly, at least, I don't say clearly, I, I believe that's why they've kind of gone to this system. Is that sort of a, a grasping at straws? It doesn't sound like you're a big fan of that, Peter. Are they sort of grasping it? Well, this is the only thing that we've seen to have done well with, so we're going to adopt that, and that's how we're going, as opposed to maybe looking back historically to find out what made it successful when you know guys like Jack Nicklaus and, 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 and Dave Stockton and guys back in the you know 70s, 80s were successful. We're not, we're not going to go back that far we only had this one little example of what works, so that one little example is what we're going to do from now on. Yeah, but it had nothing to do with anything. The whole thing turned on the last 90 minutes of the singles competition where we putted much better than they did, and we had some unexpected wins like Anthony Kim beating Sergio Garcia 5-4. and four. 
that was not foreseen ahead of time and had nothing to do with pods. It just had to do with Anthony Kim played lights out that day. And so the last 90 minutes was a great thing. There, you know, we, the, the pod system doesn't make any sense because it isn't anything. I mean, it's it's a nothing. It It's, what are they going to do? Take them out on the golf course, you know, and, and create a foursome with the assistant captain and the other three guys? talk about strategy and talk about scoring seriously seriously they're going to bring somebody who basically doesn't play golf anymore and tell the best players in the world how to play a particular hole in a practice round you know and try to massage their egos what are you talking about it's really it's to me it's the height of stupidity and the only reason they're doing it again is because when phil got the chance to stand up at the Ryder cup and trash watson he also said, here are the ten things we need to do next time, of which, like, nine they've adopted. But they're only saying pods because in the year there was pods, the team happened to win. It didn't to do with pods. And it was all the singles on the last day, so so much for the three guys, you know, you know, being babysitted by a fourth guy. I just, I really... I'm so surprised. I'm I'm so surprised that grown-ups can even think that such a thing is possible. <laughs> All right. So let's stay on you know some of the younger players and where we're at today, Peter. You know, as we sort of look forward to the Masters, which is a little over a month away, guys like Jimmy Walker and Patrick Reed, Bubba Watts, and Jason Day all playing. Really, really well. Jason Day is a guy who's been knocking on the door for a major now for the last few years. We all know Bubba Watson has won twice at Augusta. Patrick Reed now, he's you know near the top of the leaderboard at the Honda this weekend. As you project a little bit, and I know we're four weeks out, but as we project towards Augusta, who are some of the guys you think are favorites heading into that event? Not a lot. I mean, you know... I, it's tough right now because, you know, with Tiger in Confusionville and Phil mm-hmm. maybe maybe nowhere at this point, what you've got left is kind of what you've got left, and nobody's a super-duper star, and nobody's got that good of a track record. I mean, Jason Day, here's a perfect example. You know, you mentioned in raising his name that he's been very close in majors for the last few years. To which I, to which most people say to you, Chris, yeah, that's that's right. You know, he's he's, he's due here. To but I say, whatever. The guy's won three times ever on tour. in his whole career. He's won three times. That's now a super duper star. Three times. That's why he hasn't won majors because he doesn't win majors because he's won. Three times. He doesn't have what it takes to close a major championship based on form. How many times have we watched him come to the last three holes of a major and go bogey, par bogey? I mean, that's not closing the deal. He's not a great player. There are no great players right now. Great players do great things. There are some good players now. There are some players who've won some majors now. But it is not, you know, one of the great crops of great players because they're all too young the good ones now are all too young to have had time to become great, like Justin Speed. He's only 21. He may turn out to be a great player, but you can't call him a great player yet because he's only won one time on the PGA Tour. You know, he did win over in you know Australia, which was killer diller. You know, winning by like nine shots and then winning by ten shots at Tiger's tournament. 
against, you know, 17 of the best 25 players in the world. So, you know, it wasn't an official event, but he's hot. I would, I like his, I like him even with Bubba going into the event. If I have to pick two people, Bubba, because for whatever the reasons are, he plays that course really well. And he's won two of the last three times. One time you can win by a fluke. Two times is not going to be a fluke. So you just have to like his chances going in the tournament because he's played so well there. You know, there's something to be said. You know, I'm, I believe in if he's had success there that he's really comfortable. And if he's really comfortable and doesn't get too twitchy, then he could he could win again. And I like Jordan Spieth tied with him. You know, Jordan Spieth's hitting at 300 yards now, so he's moved up to like 40th in distance. He was like 12 or 14 yards shorter than that a year ago. So he's picked up some distance. You know, he's a very regular top 10 guy, and Mm -hmm. you just know that he's going to learn to convert more stuff than he's converted so far. So I really like his chances. And then it's a toss-up between, I think, a lot of the guys you mentioned. I mean, you know, Jimmy Walker's obviously a really, you know, fine player, but we'll see what he can do in a major championship. Yes, Jason Day has knocked on the door. I expect him to play real well again. I don't expect him to win because he hasn't shown that he can really do that yet. I won't be surprised if he does. I won't be disappointed if he does. I just don't see it based on what he's done so far. But if he's going to step up his career and get beyond three champions, PGA Tour wins, yeah, picking up a major would be a nice next step. And he's capable of doing it, but he has to prove that he can do it. You know, it's like Jack Nicklaus said of Tiger Woods when Tiger had a better chance of catching Jack's record than he does now. And Jack said, he still has to do it. He he still has to do it. You know, and that's what I'm saying about Jason Day. He still has to, like, do it. He hasn't done it yet. He's only won three times. He hasn't done it yet. So, um, mm-hmm. so like him, like Jimmy Walker, I like Justin Thomas. Um, you know, this young kid, he's, he's Jordan Spieth's age, <clears throat> but he's long and he's strong. Brooks Kepka would be a good choice. As a matter of fact, if I had to put him on a piece of paper right this second i would give you i would give you jordan and bubba followed by brooks kepka and then i would put in the next group below that i would do the jason day brant snedeker thing like see i don't see right. snedeker winning augusta that i don't see snedeker winning the masters i just don't see, i mean i that stroke looks too quick to me for those fast greens um I, I think he's a little wilder ball striker than he was when he won a few weeks. When he won a few weeks ago, he only made one bogey at Pebble. One bogey. That is otherworldly. There's really hard holes when you look at the three golf courses that he won on. But, you know, I would pace him in that fourth grouping because he hasn't done it yet. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's I think it's wide open. I have no idea what the deal is with Phil Mickelson. I would suspect, based on the way he's playing now, that he's not going to do anything of interest at all at the Masters based on his form of the last, well, you know, almost two years. So, and, and, and Phil obviously got, you know, he's he's at least amongst the leaders. I, I haven't looked at the leaderboard here in a little while. At least he had gotten himself to one under par through two rounds of the Honda, but it would be interesting to see, you know, if any if anybody has, you know, magic, out at Augusta National that maybe, you know, can get up for a single event like we saw Jack for so many years, right? Even in, uh, up to, you know, he was 58 years old, God bless him, in, two, in 1998, made it, you know, to sixth 
and that and that event. Do you think Phil's got you know something a little extra adrenaline, a little extra oomph once he gets to Augusta National? And uh, I'd love to see him play well. To your point, hasn't really gotten up for many golf golf tournaments in the last couple of years outside of the PGA. But I think he is somebody that might have a little magic in the stick when it gets to Augusta National. At least I hope for him. Um, Peter, talk, talk about a couple of guys who come back from nearly from the dead. You know, a couple of European players who fell off over the last couple of years are now, at least in the early part of this season, playing playing some good golf. Padraig Harrington near the top of the leaderboard at, at the Honda. Paul Casey was in the top 15 last I looked. You One of the things about Paul Casey that just boggled my mind, Peter, is you know he was he, he seemed to be a guy much like Jason Day who was sort of kind of knocking around you know a major event, playing some good golf, fell out you know fell on hard times and then disappeared for several years. He announces that he's no longer going to play on the European Tour, quit his membership over there to come play over here full time. Surprised a guy like Casey would leave Europe to come over and play full-time on the tour? Or is this sort of a last gasp at making you know something out of his career? I like your, I like your last choice. I think that, you know, it's been a not great career. You know, he's played some good golf. He's not won much stuff. He's been disappointing in a lot of events where he's gotten off to promising starts and folded fairly quickly on weekends. You know, he's not what you'd call somebody that you, you know, ever thought of as being an interesting Ryder Cup player. So, you know, it's been kind of marginal for a guy who has a name as big as his. You would have thought, based on how well people know who he is, that he would have done more than he has, but he hasn't done more than he has, which hasn't been very much. So I think it's a good play. Uh, there, there, There must be something that we don't know, like, you know, uh, family here now, more roots here now, less reasons to be on the road. He's getting older now. You know, he's not 25 years old anymore. Um, So I could see some roots issues and not wanting to travel so much issues. Um, I could see him wanting to play on the better golf courses of the PGA Tour. Um, The European Tour is a lot easier tour, and he could win more there, but he hasn't been doing it. So... I get the feeling it's a stay-in-one-place kind of thing or a family thing, and let's see if we can make our mark on the PGA Tour that we haven't made so far. I think he had. I, I think he's he's exempt for the year, uh, for, for this mm-hmm. calendar year, if I'm not mistaken, to play. So, right. um, you know, so he's he, he's got a chance to play some decent golf. He's a really good player, you know, but he's like, you know, he's a rung below Jason Day maybe, right? I mean... You know, he certainly hasn't contended as much as Jason Day has for not winning. Jason Day is another name that, you know, we know really well. He knocks on a lot of leaderboards, you know, just hasn't come through very often yet. But Paul Casey, less so. So, you know, he's probably an underachiever where Jason Day's got a chance to be somebody who plays up to his ability. But Paul Casey's behind the curve, and it would be great to see him good play good golf here. He's got a very good personality, and he's a very interesting guy, and he's a very nice guy and a friendly guy, and a cool guy to have a beer with. I'd love to see him make a mark over here and add some personality to the tour. The other guy I mentioned is Padraig Harrington, and right. we all remember the three majors that Harrington won back in 07 and 08. Do you think he can get back to where he once was? I I really don't. I I do not. I will be very surprised, but very pleased if he plays good this weekend. 
he has just had so many struggles. Now, there have been signs of life in the last six months or so. You know, he's popped up on a leaderboard here. He's had a couple of good days there. But this is one mean golf course that they're playing down at the Honda. PGA National just wear you out. I mean, those three holes that they call the Bears Trap, I mean, those are ridiculous holes. They're just ridiculous holes. There's no green to hit for. That's where everybody's making such big numbers is because there's nowhere to aim it. The green's on a diagonal. It's as thin as a bacon strip. The wind howls. There's nowhere to miss left. There's water right. I mean, it's just an impossible situation. I expect Padraig Harrington to have more trouble than a lot of guys with the wind down there, I expect Phil Mickelson to have more trouble down there over this weekend because of the wind down there, and he's not always been such a good wind player if they end up getting it. But I'm going to be happily surprised if Padre gets it together again just because it's been so long. You know, he really hasn't played any good golf since '09. That was six years ago. Changed his swing a couple of times to try to get better, right. and that's the kiss of death. And so I'm really happy to see him up there. I I have a feeling he'll topple off easily. To the point you just made, Peter, he changed his swing a couple of times, which you're exactly right, is the kiss of death. You know, we know Tiger has changed his swing, I don't know how many times, four times now. You know, Padraig Harrington changes his swing. Why are guys changing their swing? Padraig wins three majors and then decides to change his swing. Why? What are you doing? Tiger Woods. Changes his swing from you know from what what was so successful at the beginning of his career when he's dominating the sport back in 2000 and I know you know the knee became an issue and maybe he needed to take some pressure off the knee so maybe that's a reason why Tiger started to mess with his swing but why are guys messing with their swing I talked to Bobby Clampett a, a few months back and Bobby was you know talking about how you know when he changed his swing he had so many people starting to get in his ear about you know things started to go wrong for him and instead of you know maybe taking ownership of his own golf swing and trying to figure out and play his way back into it he gave you know 40 voices in his head do this change that do this other thing Tigers 40 voices in his head now the guy can't even chip a ball without you know without it sculling across the green why do guys change their swings and then get into multiple, like Tiger, with the multiple coaches now on his fourth golf coach. Why? Why do they do that? Because they think they can get better. You know, Tiger said to Butch, you know, after he started just, you know, after he won the Tiger Slam and just picking, you know, picking up majors left and right, he said to Butch, I want to change my swing. And Butch said, what do you mean you want to change your swing? You now have the greatest swing in the history of golf. And Tiger said, but I want to get better, and I want I want you to change some stuff. And Bud said, I'm not changing anything. He said, I'm not changing anything. I wouldn't change anything about your golf swing, and you'd be an absolute fool to try to change it. And then they had some personal issues about Butch making too much money, and he wrote a column about Tiger that he didn't approve, get Tiger's approval of first. And, you know, and so, you know, that relationship ended, but Tiger went and sought you know, a different golf swing that he hoped would be more effective, which was insane. You know, he may have gotten bored. He may have just gotten bored with the perfection. You know, Byron Nelson said that in 1944, when he was the AP Athlete of the Year, and again in 1945, 45, he had a scoring average of 68.33, and they were not on manicured golf courses like the guys played today. I mean, some of them were fine, but a lot of them were not fine. And Byron Nelson said... I I got bored sometimes. He said, I just got bored with the perfection. 
and uh, and I said to him, "Did you ever? Did it ever make you want to tinker with your golf swing?" And he said, "No." He said, "No." He said, "There would be no. Why would you do that?" He said, "When I was 24, he said I finally had my golf swing exactly the way I wanted it. Knew I was never going to change it again." And he said, "And I went the whole rest of my career." being so confident of my swing that I could go two weeks without hitting a golf ball, tee it up on a Thursday in a tournament, and win the tournament handily. He said, I did two weeks, wouldn't wouldn't hit a shot, could step to the first tee, no problem whatsoever. He said, I never worked on my swing after I was 24 years old. And Tiger shouldn't have worked on his swing after he was 24 years old. I mean, exactly the same age, finding it at exactly the same time, coming up with the best swing of your time, Byron Nelson with the best swing. Well, maybe Sam Snead had as pretty as a more beautiful swing, but, you know, Byron's was awfully efficient. And, uh, you know, and so Tiger had the best swing. Byron Nelson had the best swing. Jack had the most efficient swing. He never thought about changing his swing. He just couldn't figure out how to chip well enough in 1979, really, to win more tournaments. And he went and saw Phil Rogers, and Phil Rogers show who was a boyhood friend of uh, Billy Casper's or actually generation behind. But, uh, you know, he worked on Jack's chipping and told him to make a figure eight move, but Jack never messed with a swing, not ever, ever, ever. And most players, you know, don't, I mean, even look at Phil, who you would think would be the experimental type. He's pretty much had the same golf swing always, you know, Butch is always just trying to get it shorter before him. Rick Smith tried to get it shorter but it's still the same, you know, sort of DNA fingerprint. You know, it's still Phil's swing. With Tiger, you can, in your mind's eye, see distinctly different swings, including the chipping mess that he's blaming on a release pattern, which good players are telling me that there is no such thing, that if you if you can't chip, then you're unable to play golf, and the chipping is the most basic motion because it's just a little arc and a brush of the grass for a good player that should be the easiest shot in the game is a straightforward chip, easier than a putt. And uh, guys are saying there's no such thing as a release pattern, that his hand-eye coordination has deteriorated to a significant extent, and that that's why he's having these problems. I can't ever remember a guy having hand-eye coordination issues, not at 39. I mean, Sebi had issues, but they weren't hand-eye issues. They were messed-up issues. <laughs> So, talking about chipping the uh, chipping the ball, Peter, give us give us a little golf history lesson for those who aren't as familiar with what golf was like back in the you know the 30s and the 40s. You know, we talk about golf clubs and golf balls and the technology that we have today. Talk about what they used in Jones's time. I mean, you know, as, as you know, as I've read about Jones, and I only know a thimbleful of, of the things that you know about Mr. Jones's career, but you know, hitting nine iron. Out of a sand, you know, out of sand traps. They didn't have, they didn't have, they didn't have pitching wedges, let alone sixty-degree wedges and things that you know players use today. Talk about what that was like in the in, in the history of golf from a club and ball perspective. Well, you know, we talked about Billy Casper winning at Winged Foot in '59. Jones won at Winged Foot in '29, and it was the same golf course and it was the same length. It was the same length in '29 as it was in '59. <laughs> They didn't lengthen it. They didn't do anything to it. 
The only thing that was different really about the golf course was there were a lot more trees in 59 than there were in 29. And eventually the course got overrun by trees and they had a tree removal program starting about 15 years ago to get rid of all of that stuff. But if you look at what Jones was doing in terms of his driving distance, his driving distance was between 240 and 270. And I was really surprised at the 270 number. I thought it would be 240, 250. But if you, there's some diagrams. For example, if you go to golfclubatlas.com, which is a really cool site about architecture, there's in one of the threads they have the 36-hole playoff between him and Al Espinoza. Um, on they show each hole and they show lines as to where the guy's ball went, how far they hit it, and then how many shots they took just based on a solid line for Jones and a broken line for Espinoza. And Jones was hitting a lot of balls 270, a lot of balls 270, you know, wow. which is out of this world because if you just go to, say, 1980, okay, so 50 years after Jones did that, the longest guy on tour was 280. So 50 years before, Jones was creeping in on the guy who was longest on the PGA Tours 50 years after he was. Which shows you a couple of things. One, that Jones was probably as long or longer when he chose to be than anybody else of his time. As long or long as long as he chose to be. And there were a lot of pokes. There were a few pokes over two seventy, but there were a lot right at the two seventy mark. Casper in his driver two forty. So thirty years before Jones is hitting shorter clubs into the holes at Wingfoot because he drove it longer with the equipment of 1929 than Billy Casper was with the equipment of 1959, which is really stunning to think about. And give you an example, uh, when Casper won in 59, he laid up with three irons on the par three hole, which has got a really narrow, deep green with really severe bunker and really, really difficult so he laid up, and then he chipped in one putt, and those were three irons. Jones was hitting four, five, and six irons into number three and hitting it in the middle of the green. Hitting in the middle of the green with the golf ball of the time, which was certainly like a piece of tissue paper relative to what Billy Casper was hitting in 1959. You know, there were fewer dimples. There were worse aerodynamics. But the balls were a lot better than people think the balls were. I mean, Jones wasn't shooting 69-72 in a playoff at winged foot in 1929, you know, if the equipment was so inferior. I mean, they make it sound like, you know, how did these guys ever get it around? They got it around because the equipment was fine. Jones's clubs were hickory shafted in 1929. But if you look at Jones's clubs or ever hit one like his and make a successful strike, you realize that they're a lot more powerful than they look. That you know they weren't they weren't whippy that they were very very firm you know like his were like a, a stiff shaft there was nothing whippy or giving about it and uh, but yeah the thing now Jones's bag was and in those days he didn't have to have fourteen clubs he sometimes had as many as twenty but he'd have driver two wood three wood one iron through nine iron. And as you pointed out, the sand wedge didn't come into use really 
until the early 30s, Gene Sarazen refined the final version by 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in 1930, after Jones won the Open at Wingfoot, he did have a version of a sandwich in his bag, which he used once over in winning the Open Championship at Great Britain at Hoylake, which was one of the four majors that he would win that year. But he did have a sand wedge, but used it almost not at all. So, yeah, and, this, and the pitching wedge came after the sand wedge, as you pointed out. And so, yeah, Jones is hitting out of bunkers at Wingfoot, which he wasn't in too many of them, coming out with a nine iron, as was Walter Hagen, as was all the other guys. And the nine iron of that time um, would have probably been about 46 degrees. So, some you know right around what a nine you know what a nine iron is today nine iron is anywhere from forty to forty four but they have made them stronger over the years but in Jones's time it would have been about forty six degrees or ten degrees less than the average sand wedge that's a big that's a big number that's a fifth left right. less locked so it's pretty dramatic so to think that they could hit any kind of chip with a nine iron is hard to believe if if it had to be a little softy so. Talk about hand-eye coordination. Billy Casper would have been very happy in that time period. But you know, Jones was freakish in that sense. He, he, you know, he he he, he had hit drives as long as 300 yards on on firm fairways that were downwind. I mean, he he had done that before. Um, you know, when he won at uh, Scioto in 1926, his tee shot on the final hole, which he hit in two was about 285 yards, and he had a four-iron second shot. So, you know, his driving distances were, were pretty serious. And remember, too, that some of those fairways were a lot, you know, a lot firmer than our fairways are, and you might get a little bit more roll. You know, Wingfoot wouldn't have been quite as lush at that point. There would have been a little bit more give, um, even though he was playing in June, so you could have humidity and you could have uh, a golf course that didn't give you a lot of run. But, the equipment was inferior, but it wasn't that inferior. I tell you, Peter, you know, to, to listen to you give us history lessons on what it was like, you know, in the early, you know, whether it was the twenties or thirties, or all the way up through, you know, when the when the big three and Billy Casper and those guys were great through the seventies and eighties, and then obviously your perspective on what you see now and being able to really do a much better comparison than most of us can to, you know, today's players to to you know some of the greatest players in the history of the game. To me, always a treat. There's there's nobody else on the planet, Peter, that I would rather be able to sit down and listen to, you know, your insights and your history lessons than uh, than uh, than you. You're the best at it, Thanks. which is why I say that uh, nobody on the in the history of broadcasting, whether that's TV or radio, is better to listen to than Peter Kessler. Thank you so much for being so generous again this week with your time with me. And it's always great to be with you. Call me anytime. I love doing it. You always set me up with great questions and. It's a lot of fun, and, you know, I know you've got an incredible audience, and they're very appreciative of what you do. So to be a part of it, to be, you know, to, to know that servicemen are listening to this show. I might, My dad fought at Iwo Jima. He was a Marine in World War II, and he got hurt in the war in Iwo Jima, and he was sent home. And so, you know, since I was a little boy, I, I've had, you know, a tremendous respect. And so I'm particularly thrilled to be with you. And, of course, I love being with you regardless of, of who your audience is. But to have it with your audience, it's pretty cool, man. 
I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. Peter, remind our listeners how they can find you, whether it's on social media like Twitter or, you know, the Peter Kessler Show. I know you've got some great uh, great episodes out there on iTunes. How can they find you across, whether it's social media or online? Yeah, I haven't done a great job on social media, but um, I've got about 80 uh, shows on iTunes, the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes. It's a podcast. And so if you got iTunes, you hit podcast and uh, just type in my, my name, the Peter Kessler Show. And it's with a lot of the greats. We've got Billy Casper in there and Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Lee Trevino and Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods and Butch Harmon, you know, 40 minutes with each guy. So I think people will enjoy hearing their voices. You know, when I play the role that you play with me, I just tee them up and I let them go. So, you know, I understand both sides of it. So there's some nice stuff there. I appreciate your asking. Absolutely. Peter, thank you again for being a part of the show today. I look forward to the next opportunity. Hopefully we can get together again real soon, uh, particularly when we've got the Masters coming up here. It's sort of been a tradition with us uh, to kind of handicap the Masters field, and uh, hopefully we can get a legend. we got Gary Player teed up. Maybe we can get together, you, me, and Gary, and, uh, and do another uh, episode. It's, uh, it's Like I say, it's always a treat for me to have you here. He'll definitely do it, so let's let's tie that up. All right. Take care, Peter. Take care, I look forward friend. to catching up with you Thanks, again. Thanks, buddy. All right, you too. All right, man. Peter Kessler, I'm telling you folks, and I mean it sincerely, there is nobody else on the planet that I would rather sit around to talk talk golf with than Peter Kessler. His knowledge, uh, you know, the history of the sport is unrivaled. And uh, he's so pleasant to talk to. He's, you know, like I do, sit back, team up, and just let him talk because uh, the, the interesting stories just never end. All right, before we close up shop this morning, I want to let you know about a, a new book from our good friends, Dave Stockton, Dave Stockton Jr. It's called Own Your Game. Most of us, like I said with Peter at the top, are still snowed in or bound by the cold, and we aren't able to get out there and sharpen our games yet. So let's start this golf season by getting our minds right because so much of the game is played between our ears. And this latest book, The Stocktons, lets you know how to use your mind to play winning golf. Own Your Game recreates an experience of riding 18 holes with Dave Stockton at one of his highly sought-after corporate outings and draws from his experience as a champion tour player and a revered coach. He shows you how to think better, stay calmer, execute more consistently, and most importantly, how to enjoy the game more thoroughly. If you go to StocktonGolf.com, you can get your copy there, and for a couple extra bucks, he'll even autograph it for you. All right, everybody, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks one more time to my good friend Peter Kessel. What a great guy and uh, what a great guest this morning. We thank you for tuning in. You know we appreciate you the very most. Please check out our sister show as well, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me, my co-host Bob Lazari, our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it on Blog Talk Radio Live and starting at 10.15 Eastern Time on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Plus, on Friday nights, you can hear it rebroadcast from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern from our friends over at Bush Radio. And uh, then again, starting again at 11 o'clock Eastern on Armed Forces Radio a second time. We're joined every week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. Plus, also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. And you can find us online, this show, nextonthetee.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free and keep up to date with who our future guests are going to be by going on either site. All right, folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show today. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.